inner city school on the brink of closure needs an act of God to stay open. Well, maybe not God, but how about Sister Mary Clarence? Coming up next on Out of Touchstone. Franklin with the song A Deeper Love, produced by CNC Music Factory. Now, believe me, there's, a, there's one group that's synonymous with the early part of the 1990s. It's CNC Music Factory. Uh, welcome to Out of Touchdown. My name is Mike DeKalb. On the other end of the Skype line is my co host, Chad Smart. We have come to the end of 1993. It's been a fascinating year. How are you doing, Chad? Are you sad to see 1993 go? Uh, not really. And we were talking, you know, off air before we started recording it. This has been a long year. I think this is our longest, uh, longest stretch of episodes for one particular year. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, to, you know, I'm ready to end that year and let's move on. But before we get there, we've got some, uh, we got some films to talk about. Yeah. And we're going to look at the ways that heroes come in many, many forms. And so we've got one picture from Touchstone, one picture from Disney and one picture from Hollywood Pictures. Let's start with the Touchstone picture. It was released on December 10th of 1993. It's Sister Act 2, Back in the Habits. From Touchstone Pictures, the students of St. Francis are about to meet their match. Sister Mary Clarence Hello. is back. We are desperate women. She's laying down the law right, right, right. and bringing down the house. This uh, needs a prayer. Whoopi's back. I'm tan, I'm happy. In the all-new Sister Act 2. You ain't really a nun, are you? Rated PG. Yes, this came out 18 months after the original Sister Act, which came out in the summer of 1992. Uh, most of the cast returned, though the filmmakers did not. Uh, the screenwriter of Sister Act, Paul Rudnick, was very unhappy with a lot of the changes that were made to his original script. And, and that film was released using the pseudonym Joseph Howard. And so the sequel actually has three screenwriting credits, James Orr, Jim Crookshank, and Judy Ann Mason. I had to do a little bit of digging on this, and I saw that Judy Ann Mason was a playwright who also wrote for TV series like uh, Good Times and A Different World. And in the early 1990s, she wrote an original screenplay that was entitled Knocking on Heaven's Door. And it was based on the life of Iris Stevenson, a music teacher at Crenshaw High School, who was known for motivating her students. Uh, I did see that Iris does get a thank you in the end credits of this film. Now, Disney took Judy Ann Mason's script and modified it to be a sequel to Sister Act after the success of that first film. And so they brought back James Orr and Jim Crookshank. People who have been listening to the show might recognize those names because they had written several touchstone films. They wrote Tough Guys, Three Men and a Baby, Mr. Destiny, which James Orr also directed, and they were also executive producers of Father of the Bride. Now, the director of the original Sister Act, Emil Ardolino, sadly, he passed away in 1993. And so this sequel was directed by Bill Duke. 
And he was a veteran actor known for films like Car Wash, Predator, Action Jackson. But he also directed a lot of television episodes before transitioning to films such as A Rage in Harlem and Deep Cover. His most recent uh, directorial effort was The Cemetery Club, which was released, released by Touchstone Pictures in February of 1993. Wolfie Goldberg is back. Now, there's a lot of conflicting um, trivia on this, but I want to believe it's true in that she only agreed to do this sequel after getting Disney to release Serafina under their Hollywood Pictures banner. Now, I did see uh, stories about that, and then I also saw that Serafina had premiered before... It played in a film festival before Sister Act had come out. I don't know. I think it's a better story. I, I don't know if it was something where maybe she wanted Disney to put up some distribution costs or something, but I believe there was something along the lines of they helped get Serafina given a wide release, and so she said she would do the sequel. I'm going to um, believe that she only agreed to do Serafina if they promised to do Sister Act. Well, that would maybe that's I mean that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Now, since the first film had come out, she'd done uh, bit parts in films like Loaded Weapon One uh, and Naked in New York. I never heard of that one. Uh, most recent film was uh, the movie Made in America, starring her. Well, I guess became her boyfriend Ted Danson. That was released in May of 1993. And at this time, she was also wrapping up her run as Guinan on Star Trek: The Next Generation. Um, I was going to ask you as well, just. From a, just an interesting trivia standpoint, Chad, do you know Whoopi Goldberg's real name? I've heard it before. I, uh, I'm, I'm stretching. I'm thinking. I'm trying to think of what it is, but I do know that she got the name Whoopi Goldberg because she was a huge fan of the Newlywed Game. Oh, really? No. Or are you just making no, that I'm up? Just making God, that up. You, you should have just sold it. You should have sold it. I don't want to pass on false information to people that are updating our Wikipedia page. So this is this is true. This is yeah. true. No, Whoopi Goldberg's real name is Karen Elaine Johnson. Yeah, not even close. It's of, yeah, it's one of those really things. Um, uh, as I mentioned, lots of the cast was returning from the first Sister Act. Uh, we get Kathy and Jimmy. She had been in Hocus Pocus. That was the only thing of note that she had done in between. Wendy McKenna. She had been in League of Their Own in 1992. Maggie Smith, uh, I think the only movie of note that she'd done between the sister acts was The Secret Garden. And then we also get Mary Wicks, who would, did nothing between <laughs> the sister act movies. I think she was, she was toward the end of her career and just settled into being the famous for being the nun. Uh, but we get some new supporting cast. Chad, I know you're going to love it. We get Barnard Hughes, I, famous for yeah, yeah, he shows up. I'm like, awesome. Nuns and vampires. This movie's going to be awesome. Spoiler there are no vampires. There are no vampires. Yes, he played the grandpa in The Lost Boys. I forgot he's also in Midnight Cowboy. Mm -hmm. um, he was in The Hospital. He's in the De Palma film Sisters. He was in Tron. So he's done some Disney films as well. Yeah. And his most recent film before this was Doc Hollywood. Um, never seen that. The Michael J. Fox one? Yeah, the remake of Cars. Or Cars is a remake of this or whatever, yes. yeah. Uh, we also get James Coburn. You know what? I don't have time to get into James Coburn's <laughs> career. He is an absolute legend. I will like to point out that right before he did Sister Act 2, uh, two movies that he did in the early 1990s that I absolutely love are Young Guns 2 and Hudson Hawk. God, I love Hudson Hawk. <laughs> I, it comes up on this show too often because everybody, there's a lot of people in that movie that have turned up in Touchstone Films, and I want to remember that movie. It deserves to be remembered. Uh, we also get Michael Jeter. Oh, I miss Michael Jeter. Um, he, he was doing Evening Shade. He had been in The Money Pit, Tango, Ca Tango and Cash, The Fisher King. 
uh, Shirley Ralph, who had just done The Distinguished Gentleman for Hollywood Pictures. Uh, and then, of course, we get Lauren Hill of the Fugees. You know, they, I guess the Fugees had just formed when this movie came out. And she, I didn't realize she had done some soap opera work on As the World Turns. Uh, and lastly, just one more supporting cast that I thought you would appreciate is that we get Jennifer Love Hewitt. Now, I noticed, did you notice that in the credits, the love is in quotation marks? Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know, if, is it a nickname? I thought maybe that was in her, in her actual name. But I don't know. Jennifer- no, in her early days, um, it was credited. As, I mean, because she started out as Love Hewitt. And then she became ah. Jennifer Love, kind of like the Coog went from John Cougar to John Cougar Mellencamp to John Mellencamp. So okay. Jennifer Coog Hewitt. Yeah. Good to know. Jennifer Love Hewitt. And like I said she had I forgot because this movie is all about these these singing high school students. And I'm like, why is Jennifer Love Hewitt in this? <laughs> well, she was in Kids Incorporated. You know, I <sighs> totally forgot about that. And lastly, I'll turn the floor over to you for a moment. Speaking of singing high school students, mm-hmm. I do believe, according to the trivia on this film, there are two cast members from the Mickey Mouse Club. Chad, I know you were a big fan. I am a huge fan of the Mickey Mouse Club. I love getting the chance to bring it up whenever I can on both of our podcasts. And yeah, I forgot that. uh, Well, I knew one of the cast members was in this movie. I totally forgot. I didn't realize another one was as well. But yeah, the two members are David Cater. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who was only on the first season of the Mickey Mouse Club when it relaunched in 1989, I want to say. I should have my notes in front of me. And he's gone on to, he still works in the industry. He's a music producer, writer. He's apparently had a lot of success in the J-pop and K-pop genres before they became huge. So Uh he, he was BTS before there was BTS. Oh, wow. I say. But yeah, he's done a lot of movie work. And then the other cast member is Dee Dee Mag- Magno um, and David I didn't rec- I didn't spot him in the in the classroom scenes Dee Dee did see her d- during a couple of his songs and she is the one when they're talking about going to the uh, choir competition late in the show there's these two girls who are like oh we can't go and leave our boyfriends and then Dee Dee says well there's probably going to be you know all boy choirs there as well so that's Dee Dee. Ah. But yeah, she went after Mickey Mouse Club. Uh, she was part of the band The Party, which you and I have discussed on our other show, Wonder Why. Mm-hmm. And she went on to do uh, Miss Saigon on Broadway for a couple of years. Oh, wow. And okay. she, if you love cartoons, I, I was going to watch a couple of episodes before we recorded and completely forgot, but she is on the cartoon show Steven Universe. Okay. So okay. still got a career going. And The Party has reformed and done a couple of performances in the last few years, but yeah, I was, uh, you know, I, I didn't really enjoy sister act one as we discussed on that show. So when you told me, you know, about Dee Dee and David being in this show, I'm like, okay, now I have a reason to get excited to watch sister act two. <laughs> Come for the touchstone films, stay for the Mickey mouse club discussion and <laughs> that chat can fill you in on. Okay. As we like to do on the show, we will give our kind of discussion on the film, kind of a quasi-review, but we always like to do it in the form of questions. And so I'll start. We'll look at the performances specifically for now. And, Chad, I'll ask. The first question i got to ask is, does Whippy still have it? Like, when you watch this film, do you still get the same feelings towards her that you did when you watched the original film? Now, I know you said you weren't as big of a fan as I was, Mm -hmm. but did you still like that character enough, and are you excited to see her back? Yes and no. I mean, I think she has it. I just don't think there's a lot here to work with for okay. her performance. You know, it's like, I don't know. I almost feel like we need to 
jump into the reviews first and then work our way backwards because I don't want to repeat myself later on. But this this film really like before watching it, I had no idea what the plot was, knew mm. nothing about it. And so when watching it, I'm like, OK, oh, you know, it, it, it just there's not a lot of weight to this film. And and I just felt like, um, you know, she's brought in to be the, the music teacher for the school and I felt like there was no real buildup between her coming in and then all of a sudden the, the kids like her, like, you know, and, and granted, this isn't a dangerous minds or uh, freedom <laughs> writers type movie where you need that drama to really hit home. But I just, I, I didn't feel like, especially for Whoopi Goldberg, you know, there's Serafino Whoopi Goldberg and then there's sister act Whoopi Goldberg. And I think this one went almost too much. And, and, and by too much, I mean like on a scale of one to 100, this is like, 30 or 49% Serafina when it should have been 95% sister act. Oh, Goldberg. so, you know, I just didn't, I didn't feel it find that there's a lot of humor in this movie and, and maybe, maybe it wasn't supposed to be a straight comedy like we were expecting or I was expecting. Oh, I'm sure it was marketed that way. You know, yeah. cause I just felt the same way. Like it seemed like I like, I mean, I like Whoopi. she's always mm-hmm. great and charismatic, but it feels yeah. like the comedy seemed to be lacking from this script. Yeah. And I really think it brought Whoopi down with it. Like, you know, it's this is a star vehicle. There's there's yeah. no other way around it. I know there's a big supporting cast, almost too, too much, much. Of a supporting cast, but it seemed like it was like, hey, remember how great the first film was? Well, now she's back and waka waka waka, here's some shenanigans. And it just, I don't know, it wasn't quite there. And I think one of the biggest problems that I had with the film is that I mean, and again, is it fair to compare it to the original? Well, it's hard not to, right? Because mm-hmm. it is a sequel. It came out a year and a half later, right. you know, to try to cash in on the success. And the problem is what made that first film so special was that sort of fish out of water and then the, the supporting cast of those nuns, you know, I think it's what we, they were like the breakout stars of the film. And I mm-hmm. think one of my issues with the second film is we don't get enough of the nuns. Like, and I wanted to get your thought. Do you think we should have seen more of the nuns or do, are you happy that we moved on to a completely different plot involving all these school children? You know, you're making a movie about nuns. So, you know, uh, I, I want to go to a quote that I, I read about. Uh, I recently watched gremlins over the, um, over the holiday season. And there was a trivia note that said uh, when the studio execs first saw it, they complained that there were too many gremlins in the movie and Spielberg, Steven Spielberg director for those of you that may not have understood who Spielberg is. He, uh, allegedly said, okay, let's cut all the gremlins out and we'll rename the movie people. Nice. So, uh, so yeah, if you're making a movie about nuns, then I would expect some nuns to be in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, I just found like th- I, I think this is a movie that was made simply because the original made money. This is yeah. a cash grab sequel, where you don't really have a story to tell. So you're trying to just come up with something to make a movie, to try to make back more money. And, and I I think it really, especially probably because like you said, 18 months after the first one came out. So this was probably put right into, uh, you know, the, the production mill and just crank it out as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that hurt the film. I think it's, you know, you want to cash in while, while the money's hot, but uh, yeah, this movie, yeah, the nuns really, you know, why other than uh, Maggie Smith, you could have cut the other nuns out and not really lost anything because of how little they're in the movie. Yeah. And I, I said, if, if, <clears throat> if we knew that they were supposed to be the kids were the star, I mean, I guess yeah. it would, would have been in the trailers and now it's a new plot. It's she's mm-hmm. not 
is not at a at a at a church as much as it is a, a Catholic school, mm-hmm. right? And it, and what made it worse is I you know the kids they're fine, but they're still kind of stubborn children, mm-hmm. and I just didn't care about them as much as I did the nuns from the first time. So, what you guys think? Well, it was okay. It was okay. What about you? It was cool for what it was, but it wasn't all that. I mean, look who was singing. Uh, yeah. Yo, word up. And to who, man? A bunch of nuns singing old babies, yo? There was two guys in the fourth row that didn't even applaud, G. Oh, it was dead, stupid. <laughs> look, sis, I think we should just 86 this choir thing. I mean, some of us actually got reps to think about. Hey, yo, word up. If we start wearing robes and singing hymns and all that, my homeboys are going to think we're a bunch of punks, right? Man, and I ain't with that. That's not really true. Because in Nigeria, singing and wearing ceremonial robes is a mark of honor. Oh, in fact, there's Ferris roots, man. All I'm saying is, can't we sing something that ain't going to get the crap kicked out of us, yo? Now, I understand you got to think about your image. Because image is very important to everybody. Because, of course, your friends are going to dictate your actions through your life. So, hey, I wouldn't want you to step away from them and be an individual. That would almost be too much. But I will say this to you. When these ladies get on the bus, do not disrespect them. Do not embarrass me because it ain't easy to get up and sing in front of people like yourselves. Yeah, and I think it's because there are too many people. Like, you know, we talked about that awesome supporting cast at the beginning. Well, you have the now uh, friars or brothers or whatever, you know, the male religious figures are called. And what what purpose do they serve for this movie other than the whole shutting the school down uh, subplot uh, or main plot uh, with James Coburn is involved in, you know, it's, I think mm-hmm. they probably could have balanced that out a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, especially because like, again, we, we mentioned, you know, James Coburn, Bernard Hughes, mm-hmm. Michael Jeter, they're all great actors. Yeah. You know, it's, it would have been better off. Like, like you said, there's so many characters in this movie and they don't really get enough of an opportunity. You know, all the scenes with the nuns from the first film are just, they just feel so forced. Mm -hmm. And so just shoehorned into the, Hey, remember, remember, remember Kathy and Jimmy, let's put, let's put her in this where if you could have said, okay, let's, let's give her these. Yeah. Like I said, if if, if Michael Jeter and Bernard Hughes, Bernard Hughes is not funny in this movie. Really? Mm -hmm. Like he's funnier in the lost boys than he is (laughs) in this. Michael Jeter is always funny. And James Coburn, unfortunately always has to play the heavy. Yeah. So it, it just, I don't know. I, I really, I thought that the the supporting cast was almost, like I said, they don't really, you don't get to meet any of them. This is Whoopi's film. So it's like, why, why not pare down some of, some of it? You know, I guess if you're going to make it about the students, why not, why have so much of the intrigue? I know it's, it's, it's a common trope. The, uh, oh, the school's closing down. We got to save it. Hmm. But then they spent a whole lot of time with the administrators of the school when it should have been more about Whoopi and the kids. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, and that kind of leads into the, the next set of questions I wanted to ask you, which is more involving with the script and the production is it just, it seems like, you know, it's a school, right? But how does the school function? <laughs> you, know, you hardly ever see, you know, you don't see them in class. It, it's not, it's not a, like a high school movie mm-hmm. where you see them walking in the halls and stuff. I guess you see them on the basketball court one time, right? Kind of practicing. Or you see them on the street doing some graffiti mm-hmm. and kind of hanging out, but it's like, they don't, the kids don't want to be in this school and you never see them in any of the other classes. So you don't know what they're going through. And then at the same time, when the school is going to get taken away from them, all of a sudden they care. And you're like, why would they care if they're going to lose this school that they don't seem to really, really want to be at? I think that part, they kind of quickly, you know, pass over by saying that they're going to have to be bused to another school further away. So Mm -hmm. that aspect I can see, but yeah. And also, 
I'm not, you know, I know ne- I never went to a religious school. I, I'm not that familiar with the Catholic, uh, fundamentals of, of structure, but I don't know if you necessarily have to be a nun to teach at the school. So why did Whoopi have to become a, like, why couldn't they just bring her in as a music teacher? And, you know, I, I don't know, uh, that, but the school part, yes, I don't, like you said, you see one other teacher, you don't know what, I mean, what classes do the nuns teach? I think Kathy, was it Kathy Najimi? I think there's like one scene with her teaching a class. Sex ed. Sex ed, right? yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> that's funny, yeah. Cause... Just just for one joke. It's a yeah. one joke, pre- it's a one joke premise of her class, basically. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the only students are the ones that are in Whoopi's class. So, yeah, yeah. The, the the script had a lot of problems. Well, but then you got to work in these performances, right? Yeah. And that's another thing. I, again, I hate to keep going back to the first film, but the first film, I, the performances meant something because it was like, mm-hmm. oh, there's a choir. Okay, now we have to rehearse. We, she, you know, she's it's it's all these these nuns aren't that good. They're rough mm-hmm. around the edges. Whoopi's going to bring them together because she has this great Vegas experience. And with this one. It was like, you don't really see as many of the performances. I was going to ask you, should there have been more? Because I felt that there, there definitely needed more. We needed more rehearsal footage. We, you know, the energy from the first film with all those yeah. choir scenes. And yet in this movie, they have, there's two performances with the nuns. And I don't, I don't understand why they're in the movie. They're just, they, it's literally like we brought, they brought them back as like, hey, remember them from the first film? Mm-hmm. You know, and it would, those, it's two scenes, both unnecessary. And it kills me because one of the songs they sing is one of my favorite songs, which is Ball of Confusion by The Temptations. That song is about the Vietnam War <laughs> and about like all the and civil rights movements and stuff. And it was, it's very odd uh, seeing these nuns in a nursing home singing this song and trying to work it into like this, this uh, R&B sort of gospel thing. You know, I, I didn't quite care for that, but I still think there should have been some, like, it just, it's like, they, she just says, hey, we're going to form a choir. And the kids are like, huh? And then they're like, okay, sure. And the next thing you know, it's like, okay, we're performing in this competition. You're like, can we at least see it build up a little bit? Yeah. I don't know. Well, and speaking of performances, I want to start at the beginning of the film with her Vegas performance. I had to check to see if I was playing the movie at like a faster speed than normal, uh, because that's that medley that she does just seemed to like, it was like, okay, we got to get through this in five minutes. Boom. Okay. Blah, 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 blah. Here's a song. Here's a song. Here's a song. And I, did you feel the same way or was that just me? That was, I think, to be honest with you, that Apollo, that might have been my favorite part of the movie. Right. Because in a way, they, they basically just recapped the first film, mm-hmm. you know, and then they just did it with what they called the mother of all medleys, which I thought mm-hmm. was kind of brilliant. And that was, and it, it sucked because you're like, oh, man, this okay, this is going to be great. Whoopi's back. Mm-hmm. And then it just, it just never could recapture the spirit of that opening number. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, but, and it, what, I think what, what also gets me is kind of a lost art or at least was a missed opportunity was that you know the original film had all these 60s girl group songs Mm -hmm. transferred over into you know songs for a choir that performed by nuns and it felt like this was an opportunity for them to be like oh instead of doing 60s girl groups we're going to do 90s Mm hip-hop and that shows up in the very last performance but we don't see it anywhere else in the movie and i was like again why why not have a, a scene where Somebody in the class is just like, hey, here's this hip hop song that's out right now. And then Whoopi's like, oh, I can work that into a, mm. a choir song. But no, you know, when we get to that last performance and all of a sudden they're, 
they're they're saying you're down with god yeah you know we have no reference to naughty by nature at any point before that yeah. or any that any of these kids are listening to hip-hop other than the fact that they're freestyling in their classroom mm. it just i don't know i mean the only good part i will say that sister mary clarence does admit to liking my favorite rapper <laughs> I, I wondered if you uh were gonna bring that up because yes i got a little chuckle when when that scene came on Will you lighten up? Look, I like Big Daddy Kane, okay? Will you just rap for me, please? Always got love for Big Daddy Kane, my favorite. Uh, all right, all right. Last thing I got to ask you, and it's I feel mean asking you this, Chad, but was there, was there any movie trope that this film forgot? <laughs> because it just, if you check off a list, you know, inspirational teacher, check. You know, the disapproving mother of a Shirley Ralph and Lauren, and Lauren Hill, check. Singing competition at the end, check. You know, We've got the mm. underhanded businessman that James Coburn is, you know, we don't know what he's doing, but he's clearly plotting behind the scenes. Check. You know, I mentioned the school in danger of closing. Check. It just it was just one after the next. And it was it was hard to not be you know, rolling your eyes halfway through the, the film. Yeah, they could have called this Sister Act to the kitchen kitchen sink because yeah. everything is there. And that's and that's what I you know, I wonder if just out of um, lack of time to construct a good story. The writers just went to their screenwriting 101 book and but went just down the line and checked off every box to, you know, be like, okay, here's how you write a script in one week. Well, the sad part is I want I want to know if that original script that Judy and Mason mm. wrote, that knocking on heaven's door, if that would have just been a much better picture, you know, because otherwise they're like, hey, quick, we can put this in, into the next sister act. We can get it out while, while the original film is still fresh in people's minds. And it, it kind of harmed it, I think, yeah. as a result. Yeah. Um, well, you and I felt that way. How did the other prominent critics of the era feel, Chad? Give us some reviews. Uh, all right. I think uh, this is going to sound a lot like deja vu a lot of the time. So uh, first we have, you know, I always like to start off with Roger Ebert, the voice of our generation. So he says, what's strange about Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, is that it abandons most of what people liked about the first movie and replaces it with a formula as old as the hills. After the original Sister Act broke box office records and entertained audiences all over the world, the makers of the sequel could have started with what was best about it, the religious humor, the Goldberg Edge, the poor neighborhood, neighborhood, the singing nuns, and written that material into a smart, funny movie. Why did they decide to take a tired formula off the shelf, dust it off, and recycle it? Two stars. And Karen James of the New York Times wrote, If the movie seems muddled about high school, it is hopeless about music. The original Sister Act counted on hokey but catchy adaptations of girl group songs. The sequel whizzes through a bit of everything from gospel to Motown to the tamest versions of rap ever recorded. They're like (laughs) rap light. The the movie may not intend to be creaky and condescending, but it flirts with the idea that rap is the devil's music. Okay? Mm. And then I, I... you know, I always like to end with Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly. Apparently, it was his week off at the magazine, and he did not review it, but Ty Burr did. And he said, conversely, Sister Act 2 doesn't have one original idea in its entire 100 minutes. Somewhat bizarrely, it doesn't matter. The plot isn't just a retread. It's bald. It's Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland putting on a show by way of To Sir With Love. The recycling so cheerily blatant, it almost short-circuits criticism. B-minus. Still, be mine. That's better yeah. than I was going to expect. On a scale of one to ten, Chad, where do you come down on Sister Act Two? You know, I'm kind of in the same line with Ty. I want to say Ty Burrell, and I think he's the actor from uh, Modern Family. Modern Family. I don't know why he thinks of this movie, but Ty Burr. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with Ty Burr, and 
yeah, this movie to me is a mix my, for my referencing is break into electric boogaloo meets summer school. Yeah. And I, Wait, it, hold, hold up, hold up. That is an excellent, excellent <laughs> analogy. <laughs> Seriously, you, you nailed both of those movies. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm like watching it. I'm like, Oh my gosh, th- there is nothing original in this movie. Like, you know, exactly every beat that's going to be hit, but at the same time, like it's watchable. I enjoyed yeah. it. I, you know, I, I would say I would probably be more inclined to watch this one over the original sister act. Oh, stop. Um, again, just because I don't know, but I'm giving it a five because again, it's, it's not bad. It's not good. It's just right. It's a playing it safe, uh, movie in the middle. And, uh, that's, that's where it's at. So I'm giving it a, a five. Yeah. And I always, I always reserve five, five is that cutoff line where I'm, eager to watch it again at some point, mm. maybe I'd be to give it another chance. And I can't do that with this. I gave it, I gave it a four. I, I really thought it was a very thin plot. It definitely misses the charm of the original. And, you know, they didn't know how to handle the supporting cast, yeah. whether to pare it, pare it down or to expand on it. But it's still, it's still whoopy, you know, mm. and she's, she's enjoyable enough. And I, I like the music, but uh, just such a, it's such a misfire. Yeah. I'm with you. Like you said, I, I don't think this movie's good. I, I definitely wouldn't be like, oh my gosh, you have to go out and watch this movie right now. But if someone put this on, am I going to sit here and be like, oh, man, can we put on hello again instead? <laughs> you know, it's, it's that it's yeah. Yeah. That's not going to be the case. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, from a trivia standpoint, I got a couple of little nuggets. Mm-hmm. I saw that Whoopi Goldberg's daughter, Alex Martin, she plays one of the kids in the classroom uh, I think you said she's one of the ones that makes the joke about um, your mama mm. is so fat she sits on a rainbow and Skittles came out. I yeah. think that's supposed to be her. I didn't realize it. To show you how old Whoopi is and how young she was when she had her daughter, Alex Martin is a grandmother. So Whoopi is a great <laughs> grandmother. I, I can't, can't, can't wrap my mind around the fact that Whoopi Goldberg has great grandchildren. Yeah. And then, uh, as we always have with movies of like this that have involved a, a group of singing uh, young people. Yeah. There was a nationwide search to find, uh, the students for the class. There was 23 students and over 3000 young actors were auditioned. And Hey, you know, we got, we got the girl from the Fugees and, mm-hmm. uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt from kids incorporated. So yeah, it turned out pretty good. Yeah. Uh, somewhere out there, there was a Jonas brother weeping yeah. <laughs> because no, he was like kidding. six months old. Like he wasn't uh, wow. auditioning yet. I was going to say real quick. Um, did you catch, I think, I believe it was the character Frank Hay. Um, who I, I swear I've seen him in other things, but looking him up, I apparently have not. Um, but did you catch that he was wearing a Chippendale? Uh, I don't know if it was a Rescue Ranger hat, but it, it was Chippendale of Chippendale oh. fame. Yes. Oh, so, okay. A little Disney wow. connection. Sure. Totally missed that. No, I did not know. Mm. Uh, well, I was like to look at there's a personal connection with these films. You know, if, we, if we've ever met anybody or been do Q and A's, I got nothing. You know, for a cast this mm-hmm. large. I could not come up with any moment that you and I had ever been to a Q and a with any of these actors. No. And I missed out when they did the Mickey mouse club 30th anniversary uh, a few years ago. I, I did not go uh, kicking myself now after seeing all the videos on YouTube, but yeah, that's, I got yeah. nothing. Miss Didi. Yeah. Um, okay. And then the last thing of course is the, the legacy of the film. I, I did, I think we mentioned it on the sister act episode as well, but uh, there was a stage musical. It debuted in 2006 on Broadway. I think it was off-Broadway, then it made its way to Broadway. Um, and then when it premiered, it, it played in the West End in London. And Whoopi actually played Mother Superior in a West End production in 2010. 
and was scheduled to return to the role of Dolores in a run in 2020. Of course, it was postponed two, two separate times mm. because of COVID, and it's now going to occur in the summer of 2022, and Whoopi was unfortunately had to drop out. Mm. So that's too bad. Um, there is a Sister Act 3. They've been talking about it for a while. It is in, still in development. It's supposed to be released on Disney+. Plus. I saw that Tyler Perry is, is a producer, but from what I gathered, there hasn't really been any a lot of movement or casting announcements that I can recall. I, just, I know Whoopi's attached to it. I, I think they've got a script and they've got a director, and I said Tyler Perry's producing, but I've seen nothing else, no release date, no sort of press announcements from Disney about this coming to Disney+. Plus. So... But uh, all right. Well, just in conclusion, again, I, I don't want to keep beating a dead nun, but, uh, you know, I wanted to like this film, but I just had a hard time. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I got to ask you, Chad, what is it with Touchstone sequels? I, I feel this is now the third movie that we've had a sequel to. And all three movies, I enjoyed the original films. I enjoyed Three Men and a Baby. I really enjoyed Stakeout. I absolutely enjoyed Sister Act. Mm -hmm. But Three Men and a Little Lady, Another Stakeout, and Sister Act 2 are just total, just woof. Well, I don't get it. It goes back to what I said earlier. These are cash grab sequels. They're, they're not being made to advance a story. They're being made simply to cash in on the popularity of the original film. So they're not, you know, it, it's all about make, making content instead of, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, what is it, quality, quantity over quality. Now, now, and this totally, this is a habit that I really wanted to break. Yeah. What? What? When? At the end of the semester. Where did you hear that? I happened to be eavesdropping in Father Maurice's office and I heard him talking about oh, what you were afraid this might happen. I've been expecting it for some time. Well, what do we do now? Well, we'll probably be reassigned and the children will be bused to a public school in another district. What a stupid thing to do. This is the only school left in this community. Well, we've got to do something. Otherwise, we're going to lose our students and we're not going to get them back. Well, then I guess we are going to do something. Now, you do mean we, don't you? We. Yes, yes, we. You mean you're not leaving? Listen, I said I was going to come and help. Here I am. Thank you, Dolores. Well, just call me Mary Clarence. <laughs> okay, and for the last time in 1993, we were, like I said, we're going to look at two other films that came out from the other two studios under the Walt Disney Banner. The first one was released by Walt Disney Pictures on November 12th of 1993, and it's called The Three Musketeers. When it's three against the world, you need guts. Uh-oh. You need luck. Thank you. You broke my fall perfectly. You need an edge. Their chances may be one in a million. But one chance is all they need. The Three Musketeers, rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. Check newspaper for showtimes. Of course, this is based on the classic novel by Alexander Dumas. The screenplay adaptation was by a writer named David Lockery. He had done Passenger 57 and Flashback. The film was directed by Stephen Herrick. Chad, tell me what Stephen Herrick's best movie is. Well, you know, I, I was surprised when I found out that he directed Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Mm -hmm. So as soon as his name, as soon as the name popped up in the credits, I'm like, oh, it's the guy from Bill and Ted. And then you look a little deeper. Yeah. He did, he did Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead yeah. and the original Mighty Ducks. So he had a nice little run there. Yeah. Uh, the plot, I think, in case you don't know the novel, the, the plot is 
the Frenchman D'Artagnan, who in this film is played by Chris O'Donnell, he comes to Paris to join up with the Three Musketeers, uh, played by Charlie Sheen, Kiefer Sutherland, and Oliver Platt, and they try to foil the evil Cardinal Richelieu, played by Tim Curry. Um, it was interesting to find out, like, all those actors, Tim Curry is the only one that actually had done other Disney films. You know, Chris O'Donnell, I think, was just coming up, but I, I just thought, you know, it's been, what, 10 years of Touchstone movies? Mm -hmm. Charlie Sheen, Kiefer Sutherland, Oliver Platt, nothing. But Tim Curry, one Hollywood picture, one Touchstone picture, and both of them are two of my favorites from the studio. Chad, do you remember either of those films? Uh, hello again, and blame it on the bellboy. Oh, man, just no, no, not even close. No, his touchstone film, of course, is Oscar. Hmm. And his Hollywood picture is, oh, I'm going to say it again. Everybody, if you're listening, go on Hoopla and watch Passed Away. I don't know what it is about that movie. I just absolutely, absolutely loved it. Um, and then, you know, the funny thing is I saw a lot of weird connections around this time. I'm looking at the actors from these movies, and I would just see the same movies kind of coming up and over and over again. And I think I saw that. Tim Curry is in Loaded Weapon 1 with Charlie Sheen, who was in Young Guns with Kiefer Sutherland, who was in Flatliners with Oliver Platt. You know, and and just, Kevin and Bacon. We, so we got to get, we got to finish out that six degree pie. Yeah. So. And then we also get Rebecca De Mornay. She co-starred as Lady De Winter. Uh, her last two films were both for Hollywood Pictures, uh, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle and uh, Guilty as Sin. Uh, just the less said about that movie, the better. Um, you know, I, I'm not overly familiar with this story. I never read the book or anything, but the way I, I, I viewed it when you're watching it is that it's just a very Disney-fied version of this classic tale. I was kind of underwhelmed. I was really looking forward to this, this rip-roaring adventure, but it just felt like, all right, this is, this is really for kids. Lots of sort of dumb jokes and, and kind of flat scenarios. I, I, I didn't mean that the acting was fine, but mm -hmm. I, I didn't get a whole lot out of it. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you dread... Three Musketeers, because I don't know if this is follows the book or if this is a story made up using those characters. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of what other adaptations of Three Musketeers I had seen beforehand. And mm. I full, you know, I saw this movie in the theater when it played in 1993. Did, did you? Okay. Uh, I haven't seen it since. Don't remember anything about it. Um, I, I, my, I mean, my biggest takeaway from this movie is the fact. I mean, everybody knows the theme song, All for Love or... Oh, yeah. You know, and as a huge wrestling fan, I was very disappointed that in late 90s, WCW had a wrestler named Sting. They had a wrestler named Brian Adams. Why didn't they bring somebody in and call him Rod Stewart and team them up? Like, missed opportunity. But uh. I just, you know, watching this again, I thought, okay, yeah, it, it's fine. I, I think it's a little too long. Like, yeah. just kind of drags and you're like okay fine whatever but i was expecting it to really be more 90s feeling like okay like some more like we got extreme you know <laughs> uh fencing and extreme you know but uh maybe that was later 90s and this is too early for that at that point but um yeah it, i'm with you it's fine it's fine movie yeah. I, I i don't think you know i could probably go another 30 years without watching it again but well, what's funny is this is a movie, and I, I don't really say this about movies a lot, but I feel like this is a movie that really needed a prologue. Mm. Like the movie just yeah. starts. Yeah. Like this is one where you, one where you really need like some some text on the screen, kind of scrolling up and telling you what's going on. Because I don't know enough about 
the time period. I'm like, this is pre, this is not the French Revolution. This is 150 some odd years before that. And so I, I really wish I kind of had a better idea of what what the political scenario was. Again, this is kids, so I don't really think they wanted to put too much into that. And also, I think one of the big complaints I read was that they had young actors playing with Three Musketeers. I didn't know there was an age you know, mm. limit or how yeah. were they supposed to be. But when you look at a lot of the other adaptations, it seemed like there's a lot more older folks. I was actually, I had a phone call with my dad recently and he was telling me about watching Three Musketeers. And I said, really, which one? And he said it was the, the version from the early 70s was on Turner Classics. My dad's mm. a big Raquel Welch fan. I think that's one Michael York is in. And then my wife is a huge fan of Gene Kelly. He did a version of Three Musketeers in the late 40s. And then I saw that there was another Three Musketeers movie that was in development around the same time. And once Disney rushed theirs through, then the other one just stalled. And then it ended up coming out in the early 2000s. It was just called The Musketeer. I don't know if you remember mm. that one. That's yeah. the one that had like the, the crazy uh, fight choreography after The Matrix. Mm. And then I totally forgot, 10 years ago, there was yet another Three <laughs> Musketeers movie that came out in, in 2011. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's a tale as old as time, right? You can yeah. keep redoing it, but... The, a, the, a children's version for mm -hmm. Disney, I don't know if it was quite the way. And one more thing, I can't hope it get, get over. Charlie Sheen with the mullet and the goatee <laughs> in this film. Chad, did he not look like Dante from Clerks? <laughs> that was all, the whole time. I'm just like, he's not even supposed to be yeah. here today. <sighs> he's supposed to be off, you know, uh, in another castle fighting. What is oh going my on? God. But, yeah. And I do believe that on Disney Plus, there is an animated uh, Mickey Mouse version of Three Musketeers yeah. as well. So Mickey, Mickey, Donald, and Goofy. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. Moving on. Well, <laughs> the movie we're going to discuss from the Hollywood Pictures talk about uh, a movie where Disney had a film in development and another studio had a film in development and they had to rush to get it out. That's what happened with this movie. Uh, it was released on Christmas Day, 1993, from Hollywood Pictures, and it's called Tombstone. From Hollywood Pictures. I want your blood. The Clanton gang figured they owned the town. But they never figured on Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. Maybe you better swear me in. Together, they brought justice to the West. You tell them I'm coming! And hell's coming with me! Tombstone, rated R. The film was written by Kevin Jarre, who had done Glory, and he'd also gotten a story credit for Rambo. Uh, he was the, originally was going to be the director of Tombstone, but after he shot a few scenes, he was eventually replaced by George P. Cosmatos, the director of Rambo. I know him because he directed one of my favorite Stallone movies. And I say favorite because it's a guilty pleasure because it's so goofy, but mm -hmm. it's fun. And it's called Cobra. I, I highly recommend that one. Uh, and he also did the, the horror film Leviathan. I, I, it's one of the ones I remember seeing trailers for when I was a kid, and it was looked a little bit too scary for me. Mm -hmm. Chad, did you ever see Leviathan? I don't. I only know it from the video box and a lot of articles in Fangora magazine. Ah, exactly, yeah. Uh, well, the Tombstone, this film recounts the events leading up to and after the, the infamous gunfight at the OK Corral. We have Kurt Russell, who plays Wyatt Earp. And his brothers, Sam Elliott and Bill Paxton, they join up with Doc Holliday, played incredibly well by Val Kilmer. And they're squaring off against a group of outlaws led by Powers Booth and Michael Bean. We also get Dana Delaney, co-stars as Wyatt's supposed love interest. Wyatt's character is married at the time of the mm -hmm. film. A little bit awkward seeing this sort of quasi-love triangle where Wyatt's wife is hardly around. And then this other woman has kind of st struck his fancy. It's one of those movies, and I don't know about you, Chad, 
as soon as it was over, I had to go to Wikipedia <laughs> to just to just go down the rabbit hole and see how much of it was true. What did Wyatt Earp really do? Uh, and I give him credit. It's it's the movie. I mean, it really was. Every little thing that, that this movie tells you, it seems like they did their research because they got a lot of it right. Yeah. Real quick, Mike, you, you mentioned the director, George P. Cosmatos, but you know the rumor about this movie, right? Oh, is that Kurt Russell supposedly shadow directed it, I think yeah. you called it? Yeah, he actually directed and just, uh, you know, Cos- Cosmatos got the credit, but it was really uh, Kurt Russell who directed the film. Now, again, Hollywood legend, truth, fiction, whatever, but uh, just a little tidbit that I'm sure George... Cosmatos loved hearing every time someone brought up Tombstone. Yeah, well, again, I mean, I could believe it just because of the fact that they did replace a, a direct, inexperienced director in the middle of the production. So, yeah, I could see where if Kurt Russell, I mean, I, maybe it was a passion project for yeah. him in that regard. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, th- I thought it was like I said, it's a, it's an, it's an epic story. It's got some great acting. I, you know, it's, it's somewhat violent, but I, I, it was to be expected. I mean, it's, it's a total. It's just it's a fun movie. It's a, it's a it's a crowd pleaser. It's got an amazing cast. I I couldn't get over how many like even the smallest parts are filled by somebody that you recognize, you know. And it's it's interesting. There's a lot of them that are coming back to Disney. You know, Kurt Russell's previous film was Captain Ron. You know, Bill Paxton had just been in Indian Summer for Touchstone. Stephen Lang plays one of the outlaws. He was of course in Guilty as Sin for Hollywood Pictures. Even Billy Bob Thornton, one of his early roles. He had just done Blood In, Blood Out for Hollywood Pictures as well. And it was like all these little bit parts. That was the only thing that took me out of the movie was that a lot of stunt casting. You get Charlton Heston, oh, my God, <laughs> at the very end of the movie. And then, yeah. you know, even though they're supposed to be outlaws, what did you think of um, – it was John Corbett and Thomas Hayden Church uh, were both outlaws in this movie. And you got to figure that's, – that's the guy from Northern Exposure <laughs> and, the, and the, the goofy mechanic from Wings yeah. were supposed to be these, these outlaws. And so that was the only – the casting that I didn't care for, but yeah, everybody else is just, well, and you had Jason Priestley in there as well. Jason Priestley. Yeah. But yeah, I think, you know, I, I was looking, I was looking forward to watching this again because I haven't seen it in a few years, but I was also dreading a bit just because there's a lot that I like about this movie and a lot that I don't like about the movie. And I think Mm -hmm. the love interest storyline pretty much grinds this movie to a halt every time. It's just Wyatt and, and Dana Delaney's character. But and, you know, I'll ask you this, too, that Doc Holliday, this is probably one of the most iconic performances. And, I mean, Val Kilmer has a career of iconic performances. But do you think this movie is kind of propped up better than it is based on his performance, kind of the way that I yeah. feel about The Dark Knight being propped up by uh, the Joker and Heath Ledger's performance, where that performance is so stands out so much when you think about the movie that maybe it, it, it you know gives you a little rose tinted glasses when you're thinking about the film no that's a very good point chad i and i'll totally agree with you there like when i saw this movie it's alex Al kimmer's absolutely magnetic like yeah. he's amazing i don't know why he didn't get more acting award nominations mm-hmm. for this i think your your heath ledger comparison is really good i think people rave about the dark knight i think batman begins is clearly the best of the christopher mm-hmm. nolan batmans but everyone just loves heath ledger so they, they kind of like that and i think that would be the case with Tombstone. And I'll give you a, a good example here is, as I mentioned, there was another Wyatt Earp movie in development mm-hmm. at the same time, which starred Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner was originally thought of for playing Wyatt Earp in this movie and then went on to do his own movie. And I think Lawrence Kasdan directed that. Chad, do you know who played Doc Holliday in the Wyatt Earp movie with Kevin Costner? Uh, I believe that was Dennis Quaid. 
Okay, I'm just I you I, I'll believe you because I don't okay. know. That's the whole point. Like, yeah. When you think of Tombstone, you think of Al Kilmer's performance. Yeah, yeah sure, Kurt Russell's great as Wyatt Earp, but it's Val Kilmer's performance. And yeah, the, what's funny is my wife. I mentioned my wife loves westerns. She loves the TV show Bonanza, so she was looking forward to this. She also does not like violence, so <laughs> she was a little bit put off by how brutal some of the film is. But even when it was over, I was just like, "What did you think?" And she said, "Val Kilmer. It's, mm. This movie is really all about Val Kilmer." And I, it's you can't help but, but like it. And I, uh, like you mentioned, the love story does kind of grind the film to a halt. And the only thing I could think of was I mentioned going down the Wikipedia rabbit hole after I watched the film. Mm. Well, I'd already done that before, and that was when I saw My Darling Clementine, mm. which when we were working at Fox, they had a screening of it on the lot. And that's Henry Fonda. It's the same story. It's Wyatt Earp. But they, that movie really plays up a love story. Interesting enough, it plays up a love story with his wife. Um, and it's kind of more of a romance. Whereas this movie, he's married and there's this romance that's going to happen. And it does happen in his real life. He goes off with the woman that Danny Delaney plays. And they're together for another 40 years or whatever after that. He's only with his wife for a few years. But I think My Darling Clementine is so well-regarded it's probably the best Wyatt Earp film because the love story is so strong. They make it kind of like high noonish where it's mm -hmm. like, he doesn't want to have to battle these outlaws because he's a, you know, he's a lover, not a fighter kind of a thing. And that's the only thing I could think of. They wanted to pay tribute to that by putting here. And, and again, you can't go wrong with Dame Delaney. I, I mean, I, I've been in love with her for many years and, and it was nice to see her in the movie, but you're right. It is. It's a little bit awkward. And especially with, and then mm -hmm. Billy Zane is in there as Dame yeah. Delaney's friend and they're both actors and, yeah, it's like we want to see more uh, white Earp being white Earp. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, well, my, so the, go ahead. Oh, my last question to you, though, is the biggest question of all. Who had the best mustache? Oh, man. I mean, Sam Elliott doesn't count because Sam Elliott's always <laughs> got a good mustache, right? So it's more about like I'd probably have to go with Kurt Russell, right? Mm. He's got like a, almost like a handlebar. Right? Yeah. He's got a good. He's got a good little uh, <laughs> uh, feather duster there. What do you want to call it? Uh, uh, flavor saver, yeah. Lip <laughs> lip sweater, or whatever you can. I'm trying to think of all the clever names for mustaches. Soup strainer, uh, yeah. Well, I wanted to soup strainer. Is that what one of them yeah. is? Soup strainer. Oh god, that's that'll be the, the question for the rest of this episode. <laughs> What's a good? Uh, euphemism for mustache. Um, well, I, I saved it for the end of the discussion. I wanted, to, I always like to look mm. at thematic connections between the Disney and Hollywood pictures going back to our Touchstone movie. And so I, I'll kind of group Three Musketeers and Tombstone and go back to Sister Act. As I mentioned, these movies are all about heroes, right? The role of the savior. You know, in one movie we get a teacher as a hero. In one, one movie we get basically a lawman. And then another movie we get, for lack of a better word, I guess you'd call them soldiers. The Musketeers are soldiers. Right. And, and I was going to ask you, like, did which group in these films needed the most saving? You know, like mm. it seemed like the, you know, these people are all riding into town to try to help out everybody around them. And I'm wondering, like, who needed who needed their help the most? Well, that's a good question, because my first instinct is to go with Tombstone because you're saving a town. But I'm going to have to I'm going to go with the kids in Sister Act 2 just because that gives them the foundation to not accept the limitations of their, um, you know, where they live to, you know, it gives them the motivation, hopefully, to reach out and and try to better themselves instead of just accepting what society thinks they should, you know, where society thinks they should go. No, that's a really good point. And I, I will dovetail that into, I mean, and again, I mentioned that my wife is a big fan of Bonanza yeah. 
And she told me one of the biggest problems she had with Tombstone is she didn't think the outlaws were that bad hmm. because she's seen enough episodes of Bonanza where she's like, I know what's going on. She goes, in the beginning of Tombstone, the, the outlaws are killing a bunch of people. But, but as my wife pointed out, she was like, they're getting revenge for a bunch of their people getting killed. Hmm. And she goes, and then they show up in the town and all they do is just, they're just, they kind of act like jackasses. But mm -hmm. she, goes, they, she goes, they didn't seem that bad to me. And so we, have, we always tried to try to think about like, if you take these heroes out of the film, who suffers the most, right? And you're mm -hmm. right. It would probably be those school kids, right? Mm -hmm. they, they, they don't get the motivation they need to become better for themselves. Whereas the, the citizens of Tombstone, if Wyatt Earp's not around, you know, there was a marshal. I don't know how it, you know, he's kind of felt a little bit neutered. Mm -hmm. You know, there was like a county sheriff the outlaws weren't like running wild and terrorizing the town. They probably would have gotten what they wanted and left, hmm. I would assume. And then even the musketeers, yes, there was political intrigue with the cardinal trying to usurp the king. But then how does that affect the people in, in France at the time? Hmm. They were probably living at the poverty level, even with a king. So if the cardinal would have taken over and, and gone into absolute power, how much more worse would it have gotten? Hmm. I don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't know enough about... French history of the 17th century, I guess. But, um, and you know, they're sort of just noble soldiers protecting the king. But it seems like, you know, if they weren't there, they still, I think we saw in the, in the movie, right? The musketeers are disbanded and they, they, they get recruited to be soldiers fighting against England. So you're like, they might have come in handy, right? right. In that regard, <laughs> if we wouldn't have had Aramis and Porthos, you know? And so, yeah, that's a good point. It, I, I think it's probably the kids. And now I was going to ask, and my second question was just, did any, do you think any of the heroes acted recklessly as they were trying to do their their hero movement and, and saving the, uh, the people that they were trying to save? Yeah, I don't know if I would say Wyatt Earp acted recklessly, but I think he acted impulsively where he, you know, coming with his background of being a lawman. And I, I think maybe he felt a pressure to do something to the cowboys. And that's what led to, you know, all the violence and the shootout at the OK Corral. But... Uh, you know, Whoopi Goldberg, what did she do recklessly? Nothing. She just, you know, shot, showed up and taught class and pretended to be a nun. Well, that's reckless, right? Yeah. She's pretending not to, who she's not to be. I yeah. guess the Musketeers probably, they were the ones that were the most noble, right? They didn't yeah. do, I mean, I guess the only reckless thing they did was that they didn't join their other brothers and mm. on the front lines in the war against England. They stuck around mm. because they wanted to kind of foil the Cardinal, you know. But yeah, and I think it's funny you mentioned that, you know, that, with Wyatt Earp being somewhat reckless, you know, he does have the whole, there's the whole vendetta. Like, I think this, I was reading one of the reasons that Tombstone, that they wanted to make Tombstone was because they wanted to show you that there was a lot more that happened after the gunfight at the OK Corral. Mm -hmm. And that's what we get in this movie. The gunfight's halfway through the film. And so we get that Earp vendetta where he's going down and trying to mow down all these other outlaws. And I don't know if you saw this. I guess I got this from my Wikipedia deep dive is that the, they sued Wyatt Earp for <laughs> wrongful death of the people at the OK Corral. <laughs> Like to try to say, like, you had no authority to do that, to kill these people. I mean, he did beat it. You know, he, he didn't, uh, he was found not guilty or whatever, but it was just, I think that's so ironic that you don't, you don't realize that Wyatt Earp got, had to go to court after that movie. But uh, yeah, anywho. All right. Um, well, in conclusion, we always like to look at like the box office performance of the films. Uh, we'll start with Sister Act 2. Again, I mentioned it was released on December 10th. It opened in third place with $7.6 million. Uh, the other films that it opened against uh, were Wayne's World 2, which finished first place that weekend, uh, Geronimo and American Legend, which finished in fourth place, and then there was also the limited release of Six Degrees of Separation. Chad, one of Will Smith's early acting performances. Have you ever seen that one? 
I saw it many years ago. I do not remember a whole lot about it, so uh, I just know he play. He pretends to be the son of Sidney Poitier, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never saw it. I just remember that that coming out because I mean I was a big fan of the of the Fresh Prince, mm-hmm. his music, and then of course the TV show. And so I remember it was a big deal when he was in this dramatic film. Yeah, uh, the only other Disney film that was on the charts when Sister Act Two came out was Three Musketeers, and that was in sixth place. Uh, and in second week, Sister Act Two drops from third to fifth place. We get the release of films such as The Pelican Brief and Beethoven's Second. Uh, it does manage to climb back into fourth place with the same amount of money as week two in its third week, which was actually Christmas weekend. And we get new releases like Grumpy Old Men, uh, Tombstone. And then New Year's weekend, Sister Act 2 still manages to stay in the top five in fourth place. Uh, as January rolls around, it slowly makes its way out of theaters as a lot of the Oscar hopefuls go wide uh, and the studios drop some of their films with low expectations, you know, like the dumping ground we know of January to be. The funny part is January 94 has a touchstone and a Hollywood picture coming up in it. So Disney's not uh, averse to dumping things in January as well. Uh, the film does go from seventh place to 12th to 14th, and then it finally leaves the box office charts. It has a decent two-month run. It grosses $57.3 million. The budget, I was really surprised by this. The budget was $38 million. And I don't know about you, Chad, that seems a lot because that's actually the most expensive movie that we're going to discuss on this episode. Yeah, well, didn't Whoopi get like $7 million for the film? Oh, I, I didn't. So I didn't I, I, yeah, that. I think her okay. salary, you know, probably takes up a big chunk. And then, I, and then, like we said, that cast is so big. Which, granted, that's true. A lot of them aren't. You know, the kids obviously probably working for scale. The character actors probably just a little bit more than than scale. But still, it's, mm. um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, maybe it was clearing all that music. Yeah, I guess that that could be an issue. But uh, but yeah, if you look at you know if you want to analyze the box office, you know I I thought it it, it kind of carves out a nice niche for itself. You know, it's alongside a lot of other family films that were released around the holidays. We had you know Mrs. Doubtfire and, and Grumpy Old Men, Beethoven Second, Adam's Family Values, and of course the Three Musketeers. You know, it seems like sequels were abundant, but it was probably the best time to release this film. I don't know if it would have done as good during the summer. I mean, you know, I mentioned the first one came out in May. It made $140 million. It was number six on the year in box office for 92. But I think there probably was probably a smarter idea to, to drop this around the holidays and hope maybe people are going to be out, what, Christmas shopping and, and go see it and go see, hey, Whoopi's back, I guess. Yeah, and then like you said, if it could hold over until January, February, maybe just hope that it has good legs. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's better, and like I said, maybe it's better than the, the movies from the dumping ground, yeah. or if it's playing in those cities that haven't quite gotten those Oscar hopefuls that have gone wide, I guess. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, let's look at The Three Musketeers. That was released on November the 12th. It finished first in its opening weekend, $10.6 million. Uh, the other films that opened that week, Carlito's Way, oh, so good, Brian De Palma. Uh, that was in second place, My Life, which was, that's the Michael Keaton, Nicole Kidman film, I believe. Mm. That yes. finished in third place. Uh, we also get a limited release of The Piano, uh, which goes on to win some Oscars. And and it's only week on the charts, the first non-Touchstone Ernest P. Wordle film, Ernest Rides Again. Uh, if only he had stayed at Touchstone. Uh, Disney's well represented on the charts. This is mid-November. The Nightmare Before Christmas is fourth place. Cool Runnings is fifth place. And The Joy Luck Club is in 14th place. So, yeah, three movies in the top five in uh, mid-November for Disney. That's not too bad. Uh, and in second week, Three Musketeers drops to second place 
behind the new release, Adam's Family Values. And then it drops to fourth place for the next two weekends after, this is after Thanksgiving, you get movies like A Perfect World. And then, of course, Mrs. Doubtfire was cleaning up pretty well around Thanksgiving. Uh, from that point on, Three Musketeers goes from 6th to 8th to 12th. And that's when movies like Wayne's World 2 and Sister Act 2 and others push it down the charts. And then it ends up dropping off the box office charts after the beginning of the year. Ends up grossing $53.9 million in its two-month theatrical run. The budget was $30 million. So we always say, you got to make twice that budget. And, and both these movies, not quite there. Um, you want to do a little analysis on that? Yeah, I, I think it was It's a solid debut. It was perfectly placed to kind of fill that void of family-friendly action-adventure films, you know. Uh, Jurassic Park had been out for six months. I don't know about you, Chad. I don't know if I'd consider Demolition Man or RoboCop 3 to be family-friendly, you know. And then movies like Look Who's Talking Now and Cool Runnings, those are just straight-up comedies, you know. And so it, it's a, if you're going to have a comedy-slash-adventure, it, it was a good spot, you know. It doesn't really go off the charts until, you know, the more family comedies like Adam's Family Values and Mrs. Doubtfire come out. And maybe this would have been more like an adult alternative with an adventure angle. Yeah, I I'm with you. I I'm still you know wrapping my head around how you don't consider Demolition Man to be a family friendly film. I mean, oh yeah, with the with the three shells in the bathroom. Right? Yeah, that's, exactly. That's, oh my god. All right. Well, lastly, we'll look at Tombstone again. It came out on December twenty fifth, Christmas Day. It opened in third place with six point five million dollars. It opened against Grumpy Old Men, which finished in sixth place. Uh, Batman Mask of the Phantasm was in 11th place, and then we had the limited release of Philadelphia. The other Disney films on the chart on Christmas weekend, Sister Act 2 was in 4th place, Three Musketeers was in 12th, Cool Runnings was in 14th, so a little bit of representation for Disney on the charts for the Christmas holiday. Uh, And its second week, New Year's weekend, it stays in 3rd place, and then it drops to 4th place in week 3, because Grumpy Old Men goes a little wider and, and overtakes it. Uh, it manages to stay in the top 10 all throughout the month of January, as, again, the Oscar hopefuls, movies like Philadelphia and Schindler's List go wider, and nothing really of significance is released from the other studios at that time. I, I, I put a couple movies in here, House Party 3, uh, Intersection, Blink. I, I'm not overly familiar with these movies. Iron Will, which is a Disney film, which I guess we'll talk about next year. Uh, so again, the January dumping ground. And I say that with all due respect. I, it's just, movie, you need movies to put in the theaters at that time when the Oscar movies aren't quite in every market. Yeah. Uh, and once again, Tombstone, just like the other two movies we've mentioned, it drops off the box office charts after about two months. It grosses $56.5 million. Its budget was $25 million. So I guess it, it, it turned a profit in that regard. But what I thought was interesting is that we're going to get into this on our next episode when we do our recap of 1993. But Sister Act 2, Tombstone, and Three Musketeers finish 19, 20, and 21 at the year in box office. So it's kind of yeah, it's interesting. They're all kind of packed in tight. I didn't plan that when I chose these movies. I was thinking about more about them being about heroes and saviors. Now, uh, I'm trying to think of when I saw this movie in the theater. And I think it was probably around this two-month period. And I'll just say that uh, my girlfriend at the time and I were the only people in the theater watching Tombstone. Oh, wow. Okay. So, well, yeah, I wonder because I, I remember it being out, but then I'm thinking like it did okay at the box office. And the only thing I can understand is that maybe it kind of straddled the line between mm-hmm. being like an Oscar caliber film, you know, especially with a cast like that, right. and and being like a crowd pleasing action drama because it's totally even through Musketeers the same way. 
absolute crowd pleasers. Hell, all three of these films are crowd pleasers, you know. And I think at the time around Christmas and into January, you know, the box office charts are filled with a lot of comedies, you know, plus you throw in the star power of, of Denzel and Julia Roberts in the Pelican Brief. So it seems like everybody who wanted to see this movie went and saw it. And then it got enough decent word of mouth to keep it afloat alongside a lot of other forgettable movies in January. So hey, I'll give I'll give Disney credit for this one. I mean, I thought maybe they should have got a better shot for awards. You know, we're going to get into that now when we look at the awards considerations for the three films. Tombstone was a little bit underserved, and I, I'm, it's, it's kind of sad because I thought it would have done better. Mm-hmm. Um, Sister Act 2 does get a handful of award nominations. Whoopi Goldberg gets an MTV Movie Award nomination for Best Comedic Performance which she loses to Robin Williams and Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, but she did win the 1994 Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Award for Favorite Movie Actress. Uh, I, I don't know why. Kathy Najimy is nominated <laughs> for Funniest Supporting Actress in a Motion Picture at the American Comedy Awards. Again, Chad, she's got like two seats. Now, was it for this movie or was it for Hocus Pocus? No, it was actually for this movie, Sister Act 2. I'm surprised because I thought she probably was a lot funnier than Hocus Pocus. <laughs> Uh, either way, she does lose to Lily Tomlin in the film Shortcuts. Now, you, you've seen Shortcuts, right? I have not. Uh, it's a Robert Altman film. Mm. I don't remember Lily Tomlin being that funny in it. And maybe I'm just uh, not remembering her part of the film. But yeah, those are two very interesting choices for nominations and winners for the support uh, for the American Comedy Awards. Yeah, sometimes I feel like it's the per- it's the person, not the performance, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, lastly, Sister Act 2 does get a Young Artist Award nomination for Best Family Motion Picture Comedy or Musical, which it loses to another Disney film, The Lion King. And I did the Whoopi Goldberg film. <laughs> yeah, I did to look this up. Like the Young Artist Awards kind of straddle the line between mm-hmm. two years because The Lion King doesn't come out until 1994. Yeah. Uh, Three Musketeers, it gets a movie, no- a movie award nomination from MTV for Best Song, All for Love by Brian Adams, Rod Stewart, and Sting. Fortunately, it loses to Michael Jackson's Will You Be There from Free Willy. I do want to point out, I did see Brian Adams in concert one time. He did an acoustic show, mm-hmm. just him on, with an acoustic guitar and then a, a piano accompaniment. And when he did this song, after it was over, he said, ladies and gentlemen, Sting and, and Rod Stewart. And everyone's like, woo! And, he's, and then Brian Adams said, they're not here. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, uh, it's, it's a good song. And it was, it was nice to hear it. It's a shame that it doesn't play until the closing credits, but I mm-hmm. guess... How could you fit it into a movie set in the 17th century in France? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Three Musketeers does get the dreaded Razzie nomination for Chris O'Donnell as Worst Supporting Actor. Uh, he loses to Woody Harrelson in Indecent Proposal. Uh, but Tombstone gets two MTV Movie Award nominations. Uh, Val Kilmer has both of them. Best Male Performance, which he loses to Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. And this is the one that that blows my mind. (laughs) He's nominated for Most Desirable Male, and he loses to William Baldwin in Sliver. I remember Sliver, because I think this is like Sharon Stone coming Mm -hmm. off of Basic Instinct. But Billy Baldwin, yeah, I guess he would have done Backdraft around that time, Mm -hmm. too. Yeah, I was going to say, you said you remember Sliver. I was going to say, I vaguely remember William Baldwin. Oh, he, hey, hey, how dare you besmirch his career? He was in Slapshot 3, three? or 2, one of the Slapshots. Yeah, he was in the Cindy Crawford movie, right? Fair Game. Was that, yeah. is that, was that him? Yes, that was. Yeah. yeah, but you know what movie he wasn't in? Hmm. Biodome. Oh, that was the, the well, maybe he should be thankful <laughs> That his brother had to had to had to eat that one, huh? <laughs> well, Billy Baldwin was Billy Baldwin in Flatliners. I, I, I yeah, he was in Flatliners like, too. 
with like, William like Oliver Platt. Yeah. yeah. Mm. All right. Well, as I always like to do, look at, do a recap of, of these films. You know, would would they fit the Disney ideal that Katzenberg had for the singles and doubles? I gotta say, absolutely, Chad. You know, we get we get the sequel to a beloved Touchstone film, which was, again was a top ten finisher at the box office. Mm. Plus, we get two ensemble action films, kind of focusing on adventure and drama. You know, I, all three films cost about the same. They all made about the same at the box office. I I, I don't have any problems with with any of these movies being on Disney slate. No, I'm with you. Like you said, we, you know, we criticize why Sister Act Two was made, but it's Hollywood. You know, it's it's not like there. It's not like this is the only time it's been a cash grab scenario. So definitely understand trying to capture the magic again. Tombstone. I mean, how many times has that story been told? And you know, you put a fresh spin, you put a modern take on it. And then um, Three Musketeers, how many times has that movie been told? You know, so, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it, I think there are certain movies that, you know, about every 10, 15 years, you get a new retelling for a modern audience. Yeah, and this is Disney's chance to take a crack at it. Yeah. Can't be grudging for that. Yeah. Well, if you want to watch these films, I, I can tell you that both Sister Act 2 and Three Musketeers are streaming on Disney Plus, not a sponsor. And Tombstone, I know it, it seems to pop up on cable every so mm -hmm. often. I think it was on AMC last month. Uh, I went and got the DVD from the public library. And then as soon as I came home with it, I realized that it was also streaming for free with ads on IMDb TV if you watch it through Amazon Prime. And I got to be honest, you know, it was a two-hour movie. I thought I'd heard stories about, oh, when you stream movies on IMDb TV, there's so many commercial breaks. No, I counted. There were seven. Seven commercial breaks. Each one was about a minute, no longer than maybe a minute 15. It was perfectly fine. And I got to see it in HD rather than watching an old SD DVD from the library. So, uh, well, what are we going to do on our next episode? Well, we're going to we're going to do our wrap up of 1993. And we're going to hand out our Ronnie Awards one more time. Uh, again, this is Out of Touch. My name is Mike DeKalb. You can find me on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. I also run the Out of Touchstone Twitter account. It's at Out of Touchstone. If you want to shoot me an email? Out of touchstone at gmail.com. My co-host, Chad Smart, you can find him on Twitter at Chad Smart. He's also the host of another podcast that we do together called Wonder Why, where we look at one-hit wonders. Chad, do you have any final things you want to say as we wrap up what was somewhat of a memorable year for Disney? Uh, like I said at the beginning, it's been a long year with the way we do the show now. Um, I looking back over the history of 1993 it's just it's it's an interesting year for disney a lot of uh enjoyable films that's how i'll say it so i'm i'm looking forward to what 1994 has to offer especially because i know what the first movie is mm, yeah don't get your hopes up for 1994 <laughs> woof uh, this is out of touchstone and we're out of time Out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool, thank you, good night.